0: Hear the word of God from John chapter 16. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. John chapter 16, verses 16 through 33. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning again, everybody. I'll say it again. Good morning again, everybody. Yeah, I like getting response. It makes me feel good about myself. I hope everyone's doing well. We're continuing in our series in the book of John. We've been here since the beginning of January, so we're continuing in our series, but we did one little switch-up. Earlier this week, we decided that this week, uh, the sermon is supposed to be on the first part of John chapter 16, which was talking about the Holy Spirit. We did a, decided to do a switch-up at the beginning of this week um, and switch up to the second part of John 16, talking about turning our grief, our sorrow, into joy. And most of you guys know why. Josh alluded to it already. Recently, in our church family, we've suffered grief. We've suffered sorrow. With the passing of uh, three-year-old Caitlin, our church experienced sorrow. And um, it just seemed fitting for us to switch the order of the sermons out. And today, we're going to dive into this passage. We're going to dive into turning sorrow into joy because I think this is so relevant for us right now. But not just for us right now. It's, it's relevant for us all the time, isn't it? We don't have to think very hard or go over a very long period of time and not realize there is some grief, there's some sorrow, there's some tribulation, there's some issues that we face. We live in this world and we know the world's broken. For those of you guys who've heard me preach before, you've heard my issue, my, my wife's issue with idioms. And my wife always thought that dog-eat-dog world was a dog-eat-dog world. And that's the world we live in, is that it's a dog-eat-dog world, and we wish it was a dog-eat-dog world. And so what we're going to talk about today is, I think, something that, a message that Jesus profoundly wanted to give his disciples. He wanted them to take heart. Not just a little pep talk, not just a momentary take heart, yay, but a profound understanding of deep theological truth that will set them up for whatever suffering, grief, and trouble that they will face in the rest of their lives. That's what he did. This time that we've been in for the past few weeks is called the Upper Room Discourse. So, in other words, this is a long period of Jesus just talking. And John is known for this. You know, if you look at the Book of Mark, he's very action-based. Jesus went here, that he did this, and immediately that he did this. But the Book of John it talks a lot more about what did Jesus say, what did he teach, and all these chapters. And since Chapter 13, we've been in the Upper Room, and Jesus is just talking. He's sharing with his people. Jesus moved between comforting the disciples in their sorrow and encouraging them in the hope of his soon-to-be-finished work. John 14, Jesus both promises that he's going away from them, but also to prepare a place for them in his father's house. Also addresses their concerns about being left as orphans. Also their issues of having troubled hearts. And then in John 15, Jesus beautifully describes how the disciples would be his branches, that he would be the vine and produce abiding fruit in them. Afterward, Jesus transitions to warn them that they would face hatred and persecution from this world, that the world will hate them. Then he encourages them again. So he goes to discouraging encouragement, discouraging encouragement. He goes to encouraging them saying, but hope is coming, and and his name is the Holy Spirit. He's the paraclete. He's the advocate. He's the counselor. But then he immediately goes back to chapter 16, 1 through 4, that the world's going to hate you again. Immediately preceding this passage for today, Jesus encourages the disciples through this glorious description, which we're supposed to talk about, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But then according to the pattern, it shouldn't surprise us that he talks about, after this word of encouragement, he talks about some brutal facts, that Jesus is going away, they won't see him any longer, especially in the way that which they were accustomed to. Jesus doesn't shy away from this bad news, this bitter, bitter, sorrowful news for the disciples but he gives them a word to rejoice in. He gives them comfort in the midst of their sorrow. He promises this, that Jesus will bring forth joy out of sorrow. In our reading today, we see that after all these words of reassurance and comfort, the disciples still don't get it. They still don't understand what Jesus is talking about. They understand that Jesus is about to go away. He said that enough times, about to go away. But they don't understand the timing. They don't understand the manner of Jesus' return. They don't understand for how long. They don't understand when's the kingdom happening. When are you doing your whole conquering the Romans thing? Are you going for a little bit? Are you going for a long? What does this little bit mean? They're just confused. And we're not very different, are we, as people? Uh, we can proclaim a lot of true statements as Christians, but we're also confused a lot of the time right? We often don't know why certain things happen the way they do. We don't know when God's going to fix everything. We do believe he's going to, right? But we don't know when he's going to do it. We don't know when it's all going to be finished. We don't know when he's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We don't know the timing of things to come. We don't know why often things happen the way they do. We don't know why unexpectedly change seems to occur. We don't know why tragedy strikes. We don't know why good things happen. There's a lot of confusion, a lot of asking why, and we honestly never know the answer. I remember talking uh, as a staff, talking to the pastors, and we were just saying, What's, how do we communicate where we are with this tragedy? And the first thing that we said is, we want to acknowledge that, one, we hurt and we feel with you. But when somebody asks us a question, why? That's a hard question, isn't it? When somebody asks a question, why, Lawrence? That's a a question no pastor wants to hear. Why a three-year-old girl? And I'll be honest with you, this is my answer. I have no idea. I don't. I don't know. In the midst of not knowing, I choose to believe, and it's all I have, to believe that God is good. And he gives hope. But as to why, I have no clue. I wish I knew, but I don't. But you know what? That's what makes God God, me not. And I thank God that I'm not God. We live in this time of confusion, this is what we sit in, and Jesus gives answers to his disciples' confusion. In so doing, he helps us through some of our own confusion. Notice right away that Jesus doesn't say what he doesn't say. He doesn't say that I'll take your confusion away, I'll answer the why right away. Instead, in verse 20, he says that his disciples will weep, and they will grieve. He doesn't promise immediate relief, he promises that things might get worse, as a matter of fact. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Today, there are three main points I want to give you today. Three main points I want you to understand when it comes to how we experience grief and sorrow as Christians. Three main points for us understanding how to experience, how to see it and turning into joy. Number one, you will have sorrow. That's the first point. Number one, you will experience sorrow. You will experience grief. Number two, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. And number three, Jesus does this by overcoming the world. So number one, you will have sorrow. Number two, Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. And number three, Jesus accomplishes this by overcoming the world. So number one, you will have sorrow. Honestly, you don't have to think very hard or look very far to realize the truth, right? That's a true statement. It doesn't have to come from the Bible. I mean, well, obviously it comes from the Bible, so you know it's true, but you can also be like, yeah, that's true. Suffering grief is real and is to be expected. Jesus says in verse 33 of this passage that we just read today. In this world, you will have tribulation or trouble or sorrow or grief. It says you will have tribulation. You will have sorrow. You will have trouble. You will have grief. Not may have it, not one day will have it, but it will happen. It is a promise to you. You will have trouble. Why? Why will we have trouble? Why will we have trouble? Why does that exist? Why does trouble have to exist? Let me give you two reasons for why we have trouble. Number one, because we are in this world. Well, because we're in this world, because what does a world mean? World doesn't mean this physical planet, it doesn't necessarily mean Earth. It means a system of evil that dominates creation and dominates humanity. It's the result of the fall. It is what has come after creation, was broken, and it not only has dominated human life, but it cursed the entire universe. So you just need to be reminded, this is where you live. This is the world you live in. This is our reality. In this world, you will have trouble. This word for tribulation, this word for trouble, is thlipsis. That's that's terrible. I'm really bad at Greek now. But it literally means essentially pressure, affliction, or distress. You're literally going to be crushed in this world. You're going to be pressured. You're going to be in a pressure cooker. You're going to be in distress. You're going to be under duress. This is a promise to us because this is a result of the fall. This is a result of the brokenness that came into the world through sin. This is our reality. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3 says that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, just as you know. We are destined for persecution, destined for affliction. We're not surprised by that as Christians. See, we need to understand that the world that we live in, something happened to it. When Adam and Eve, sin entered in, and the result of sin, the result of it was a cursed world. So we live in a world where genocide exists where racism exists, where slavery and systems of injustice, where greed and hatred. We live in a broken world, a world that wasn't supposed to be this way. It was supposed to be a dog-eat-dog world, but sin entered in and it became a dog-eat-dog world. That's the world we live in. And I know some of you guys, man, I wish it was so, I wish it was a doggy dog world. I wish it for my children. I wish it for all of you. I wish everybody loved each other. I wish everybody was caring. I wish we could just do whatever we wanted. People would be loving and nice and sweet and kind and didn't need laws because everybody just loved each other. That is not our world. It's not. It's tough. It's a pressure cooker. It's sinned. It's fallen. It's broken. I'm just gonna say it. It sucks. The world is hard. It wasn't meant to be, but it is. Sin broke the world. We live in this world, but we're not from this world. Do you hear me? We live in this world, but our citizenship is somewhere else. And so, we have a duty while we're in this world to change it. But this is not our world. So the first reason why, the first reason why we have grief and suffering is because this world is broken. But the second reason why, the second part why we live sorrow and grief is that it works out, hear this very clearly, it works out a peculiar glory in us. Being in a world that is broken, seeing grief and suffering does something intentional, it works out a peculiar glory in us. And that's hard to hear, and it's really hard for me to convey. So John Piper and Shane and Shane does a better job than me. So I want you to watch this video and listen to the words. Powerful, isn't it? The second reason I said, the first reason is we live in a broken world, and the second reason that we suffer, that we have sorrow, and that we have grief because it's working out something in you. It's not meaningless, it's not pointless. In our suffering and in our grief, God is securing, God is working, He is cultivating, He is shaping, He's molding, He is moving in us and working something beautiful, He's making something new, He's turning what is broken into something beautiful. And He's doing that in you. And so we thank God, even in the midst of suffering. So the first point was that. In this world we will have sorrow so we will have sorrow the second thing that we see is that he takes our sorrow and turns it into joy now grief is not replaced by joy hear that it turns into joy right it's not replaced we can have both grief and joy at the same time do you hear that very well I read about a person um, named uh, Joni Erickson Tada while researching for this sermon. So it was, it was on my, th- i credit who I got the source from, his third millennial website, and mentioned a person named Joni Erickson Tada who was a quadriplegic after a diving accident. Joni didn't let her condition hinder her. She began to paint by holding the paintbrush in her teeth. She wrote several books. She's the head of Journey and Friends, an international ministry that helps take used wheelchairs and other medical supplies from the United States to needy children all around the world. The grief that initially accompanied her condition has, by God's grace, turned to joy. And that joy has overflowed into thousands of people's lives. The Apostle Paul experienced grief turning into joy in a different way. 2 Corinthians 12:7 says this, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Many speculated about what the thorn in the flesh might be for Paul. I have no idea. We don't know, but that's not the point. The point is that through that weakness, whatever it was, God prompted Paul to lean all the more upon Christ's grace. It was for Joni, it was for Paul, it's true for us. Whatever your particular pain or wound or struggle it is, God wants to use it to increase your obedience to him and encourage more people to come to him. He won't take away the pain and the struggle as much as he will transform it into deeper reliance upon him, equally a deeper joy. In a little way, this week, it was was a hard week for most of us. I have a three-year-old son who's the same age, as Caitlin so it's difficult and in this difficulty as and I'm just gonna be honest and real with all of you guys not only was it difficult in that way but I hurt as someone who hurts alongside I worry for my son but also knowing that I hurt for for Josh who had to to do his first ever memorial service uh sermon and when Josh was hurting alongside, I hurt with him. And then I hurt with our staff and our, our people. And honestly, I, I was just on Monday night, I was at this point in my heart where I was just like, I, I don't, uh, I'm tired. I feel a little broken. Um, just at a tough place. And I remember driving by the church, I looked in and I saw a couple cars there. And one of them was Jeff and, and Tim were there. And I, I just pulled in for a totally different reason. I said, oh, I need to talk to them about something really quickly, business related. And I pull in, and um, they were there and their, their study that was supposed to get together didn't happen the way they were planning on it. So they were just sitting there and talking and sharing, and they're like, aren't you okay? <laughs> and I said, yeah. usually my go-to answer is, I'm good, everything's great, because I usually am. I'm kind of a happy, optimistic, like, yeah, everything's great. You know, My wife would joke around with me that the Lego th- song from the Lego movie, Everything is Awesome was my theme song. You know, like I would wake up singing, everything is awesome. But they could look at me, and Tim and Jeff were like, okay, you don't look right. And they just, right there, just prayed for me. And as they were praying for me, um, just acknowledging in my heart that I'm just trying to do everything because I honestly, that's what I do. I just want to fix everything, I want to be everything for everybody. That's my go to. My wife called me on the phone on Tuesday, I believe, and she was struggling um, with some stuff that happened at work, and she was really talking about all this and all that. And my typical go-to answer on the phone would have been, "I'm so sorry, honey. How can I fix it? Yeah, what can I do? Let's do this. Let's do it this way. You should do this." And okay, I'm so, honey, sorry, honey. Let's do that. But that's not what I said. She was complaining and telling me about all the stuff that was going on, and for some strange reason, God just gave me the words to say, you know, it's broken. Your work is broken the people in relationships that we're dealing with broken, but it's our job to live in this broken world to show Jesus. And I gave some good theological doctrinal truth and Gina was like, that's exactly what I need to hear. And it wasn't my go-to answer. I think what I realized in this week, God so profoundly, so sweetly, so mercifully showed me is that so often my go-to, my narrative, even though I should know better, my go-to stance is always, I got this. I'm okay. I'll operate on my skills and this week showed me dependence. And I know that answer, right? Guys, I, I'm, the, I'm a pastor, I should know this, right? Yeah, yeah, I depend on God, I tell everybody to do this. But for me, it's so hard. If something doesn't happen to me, my natural go-to, my natural instinct is I'm God, I'm in control, I got this, right? And God's grace, I know it sounds, sounds so crazy to say it to us, but hear me very well. Is that it's in grief, it's in suffering, that is a gift that He gives us. And He t- takes that and turns it into joy because He shows us dependence and need upon Him. And when He is God and He is in the right place in our own heart, everything changes. Do you hear that? There's power. There's, there's power that comes from knowing our place and who God is and who we are supposed to be. There's joy that comes from that. Yeah, I joke around often about, man. I wish I was my son, right? because his days are awesome. He wakes up and he's like, oh, who's going to make me breakfast today? Am I going to eat a bone jangles, dad? Or are you going to cook me something? You know, like, it's a pretty sweet day. What should I play with today? Excavator or, you know, should I play with that? You know, he's not worried about anything. He's like, oh, are we ice cream later? You know, I mean, that's like his day. You know, he's, he's worried about, hmm, do I play the sandbox now or... Those are tough decisions for him, you know? That's, that's, that's amazing. What does that mean? What am I really saying when I say, I wish I could be like my son? Is I wish, part of me wishes I could just like say, "Here's I don't want responsibility taken. Right? Because responsibility comes pressure, comes anxiety. How many of you guys are literally at this point where you feel overwhelmed all the time? This overwhelming, this, this weight is on you. You're like, I gotta make decisions. I gotta do this. I gotta be an adult. And you just wanna be like, no, i want to be a five-year-old. I'll be a three-year-old. Do you know why our grief can turn into joy through Christ Jesus? Because he's reminding you that in our grief, in your dependency, that He says, "You're not in charge and you're not God. Stop acting like it." The pressure is his. He's God. He's in charge. He saves, He fixes, He heals, not you. He provides. Not you. See, we struggle. We have issues because we want to be the one that says, I got this and I can provide. I got it all in my own power. I can, I can help my wife and I can be the great father and I can do all this. And when, you, when, when what kills us is we're like, I can't. I'm a terrible father. and I'm a terrible husband and this stinks. And now you're just like, oh. When we come to grief and we realize that we are not able to do it on our own. That grief then can turn into such joy because when we give it to him, he takes it. He says, look what I can do with this. I'll make something beautiful. Do you hear that? There's a weird part of this passage. It says, in that day you'll ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy will be made full. What does that mean? I mean, first, as we dive into this, we'll deal with the obvious, what it doesn't mean. Clearly, Jesus does not mean that if we use his name, it works like a magic spell, and we get whatever we desire. right, it's not saying, if we add in Jesus' name to anything, we're gonna get it. right, it's not saying, oh, in Jesus' name, new car. Uh, No, okay. That's not what it means. If that were the case, why would he promise that we would grieve? Because we could simply use his name and get out of all grief. Right? Why would he mean that we would sorrow? Jesus isn't being that simplistic. But then what does he mean by this statement? In the Old Testament, the name of God was a source of power in and of itself. The second commandment in Exodus says he forbids the misuse of the name of the Lord. The Psalms abound with praise for the name of the Lord, and it's the name of the Lord that gives power to the prophets. The actual name of God was so sacred that it wasn't ever said. Whenever the Jewish scribes read the name, which we translate uh, to English as Yahweh or less accurately, Jehovah, they would state Hashem, which simply means the name. Or they'd say terms like Adonai, which means Lord. There was so much reverence and respect for God's name that we should safely assume then that such respect should be carried over to the name of Jesus as well. Therefore, praying in his name means to pray under his lordship, seeking his desires, not our own. My thinking on this was influenced by D.A. Carson. And D.A. Carson believes that asking in Jesus' name means asking under his lordship. Literally praying in Jesus' name literally means thy will be done. It means getting our own agendas out of the way and trying to find out what God's agenda is. This promise isn't so much a promise to fulfill every whim, but more of a promise to bring our desires in line with him. Guys, here's what I really think that promise is. It's more of a promise that says, make God, God, and your grief will turn to joy. Do you understand? When we pray in Jesus' name, pray under the lordship of his name, under the lordship of his power. In other words, saying, put the responsibility on him. Put the blame on him. Put put the onus on him to accomplish everything. And when you do that, you can go, that's so much nicer. I was talking to Gina, Gina, Gina owns uh, um, uh, Meb, Meb and Piatti Dentistry. So she's the boss, right? And I, she was like, Lawrence, I don't want to be the boss. That's what she tells me all the time. She's like, I hate being the boss. You know, she, I don't want people worried. I don't, I don't want to have to be all the stress on me. I don't want to make decisions on what to hire and fire. I hate being the boss. And She's right, there's something beautiful about not being the boss, right? When you can say, oh, clock out, time's done, peace you know, oh, something's happening, oh, the flood, oh, sorry for you, I'm out of here, you know, you can do that, oh, the bank account's not looking good, as long as I get my paycheck, I'm good, I'm out, there's something freeing about that, but here's the problem, here we are as people, we're a contradiction, as human beings, we don't want to be the boss, because we don't want the pressure, at the same time, we want to be the boss, because we want to be God, we want to be in control, we want all the benefits without the responsibility, right, isn't that true, I want to tell God what to do, I want my way because I want to have my way. At the same time, whoa, I don't want all the anxiety and pressure. Here's what's happening in our world right now. Can I just be honest? I think like no other time in the history of the world can, do we feel as much godlike as we do now. I say that because we feel like we own and control and rule our own destiny. I was sharing with somebody earlier today. I was saying, you know, back in the day when people, like, majority of the population were serfs. And I'm not talking about S-U-R-F, S-E-R-F in case you guys were confusing, confused. But the serfs, like, like the peasants who worked the land, When majority of the population were like in the middle of the ages. They had a totally much better understanding of what it meant to not be God. To like, I don't know where my next meal is coming from. I don't have control over my health care. Now we feel like, man, with modern technology, with healthcare, with food, with the ability to save and retirement and money and bank accounts and all this stuff, we think we control everything. That's why we're the most anxious generation that's ever been. I want you to hear something. This is true. I want you guys not to miss this. I'm going off on a little bit of tangent. I probably shouldn't be. taking. it, I'm working out of town. But I'm going to do this anyway. Probably according to any time of history, if you're in America right now, we're the, one of the most safest people ever. Do you guys get that? We have incredible medicine, incredible technology. There's no wars, there's no mass genocides going on right now in America. There's not people on the streets just killing each other. We're one of the most safest we've ever been. We just are, right? Now just be honest with me, guys. Actually, I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand, but I'll just let you know. Studies show we're one of the most anxious, anxiety-driven people ever. Why? do you see how it doesn't make sense does it we're safest we've ever been why are we the most anxious that we've ever been I like it because I think we're more we think we're more godlike than we've ever been before guys there's joy that comes in grief there's joy that comes in suffering because there's joy when we say God take your place Jesus take your place be Lord and we'll just follow you do you hear that you guys hear that, people? Jesus did this by overcoming the world. I'm going to kind of fly a little bit here, so bear with me. Verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, for I have overcome the world. What does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world, and why should that allow us to take heart? How does he overcome this world? Right? How does that happen? I'm going to take you on a really quick journey. Really quick. There's this passage right after it talks about asking you will see my joy may be full. Verse 25. It says, "I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf." For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Another one of those, what? Am I right? If you guys are like, oh, what do you mean, what, what? I got this, no problem. Like, you guys are awesome. But that's a confusing passage again. What I believe Jesus is talking about here is something is new here. Something that In that day, this is what's going to happen. And I'm not the one who will take the request to the Father while you wait outside. In other words, I want you to hear this. What Jesus is describing here is like the temple experience. What's happened is before is what happened because of the result of the fall, because of the result of sin, there's a separation between God and man. And what Jesus is saying before, if you come in my name and talk to Jesus, then there's a mediator. But what I'm telling you now, on that day when this happens, in other words, after the crucifixion, after he takes upon the penalty upon himself, after he takes on the sin of the world, after that happens, on that day, you don't need anyone to take you to the Father. Because he knows you and he loves you, what he was describing here is his temple experience. Here, as an outsider, we're separated from God in our sin. We were the, the what was broken, separated us from God, and we needed a mediator. We needed a priest to take our request before God because of our sinfulness. And what Jesus is saying is, on that day, you will no longer need a mediator. God will know you, loves you, and called you to purpose. On that day, what does that day mean? It's through the cross. On the cross of Christ, Jesus took upon Himself the sin and guilt of the world. He took on the fullness of the curse, and in, in so doing, He overcame the world. Hear this: What did we say the world was? Anybody remember? Wasn't planet Earth, he didn't like overcome Earth. He didn't plant a flag and said, hey, this is mine. He overcame the world, as in the fallen world, as in the system of evil, the injustice that occurred, the brokenness, he overcame the brokenness. And what he did in overcoming the brokenness, he said, I'm gonna make things right. And the first thing I'm gonna make right is this broken, separate relationship between God and man. And when Jesus died upon the cross, something happened to the veil. What happened to anybody? Say that again? It tore in two, right? What was the veil separating? Us and God, right? He overcame the world. He conquered what was broken. And the result of sin and death and all that occurred fell upon him. The guilt of it was placed upon him. And in taking it upon himself, he conquered. Get this, but how did he conquer? He conquered through suffering and grief, which leads to joy and this conquering i want you to hear this word overcome i love this word oh it's such a cool word it's the word nikos nikos like kind of where nike came from victory is another word translation where overcome or victory right so nike is roman or greek roman god named nike is a goddess of victory i can't remember which is roman or greek greek i'm pretty sure yeah But it literally can translate to mean overcome, but it's also the word for victory. However, the grammar used in this verse is pretty cool. It doesn't imply just a single victory. It does. I mean, it means a single victory. But it could also denote a continuous abiding victory, both now and in the future. Therefore, the idea presented in Jesus' statement could literally be interpreted, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'm overcoming the world. And I will always be overcoming the world. I love that, don't you? Do you hear that? See, so here's what happened: the broken world, the brokenness that occurred when we got separated from God. What made the doggy dog world a dog-eat-dog world? The, the brokenness. Jesus came and, upon with with His life, showed miracles that says, "I'm making this dog-eat-dog world a doggy-dog world. I'm bringing healing. I'm bringing restoration. I'm taking what is broken and making it new." And then He said, "And the way I'm going to do this, I'm going to die upon the cross, take the penalty of sin and death upon myself, and instill this new." reality for us and the new reality is this that he has overcome the world he is overcoming the world and he will always be overcoming the world so my people take heart take heart the world is broken but jesus is making all new It's a dual promise of pain and ultimate victory. It's a promise that encompasses both the cross and the resurrection. Jesus prepares his disciples and for us for the inevitable fact that to get to Easter, we go through Good Friday. To have victory, we follow Jesus as he carries his cross. Ultimately, this cross is our only hope for strength in troubled times. It reminds us that on the other side of all pain and struggle, there is joy unimaginable. My people take heart. Your king has overcome this world. Stop being God. Let him be God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we God, we we thank you that your name is power. God, the work of Jesus is a work of overcoming the world. That means that you are renewing, restoring creation from what it what it is to what it should be. God, thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price upon the cross, that our broken relation with God is made right, but also this world can be made right, that you're renewing it. God, that you have overcome the world and you are overcoming the world, and right now you're using us to overcome the world. So may we go forth with hope in our hearts, knowing that grief secures a peculiar glory. Grief points us to knowing that you are God and we are not. So be God over us in Jesus' name. Amen.